Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast in your Week in IndyCar listener Q&A show. Recording this, bit of an odd hour, 7.11 p.m. on a Tuesday evening. Had intended to do this this morning and giving all the love and support to the healthcare workers at the hospital we live directly across from. They've gone on strike, and as part of that strike, they are using bullhorns. They are using drums. They are asking those who are driving by to honk their horns in unity as they press for a new and more favorable contract. So that's why recording during the day, not so much of an option. Also going to take a bit of a pass this week on having a IndyCar guest. Uh, Just going to try and dial back a little bit. None of this is a complaint, but I just, as always, want to be honest with y'all. It's been a pretty heavy couple months. So with the loss of Robin Miller, loss of Bob Jenkins, loss of a friend Steve Brody, uh, remembering and reflecting upon Dan Weldon and his loss 10 years ago, been in a pretty heavy place for the last couple months and between obituaries, memorial services, and just spending many, many days, most of last week, in a pretty sad uh, place, looking back and reflecting back. Going to try and lighten things up a little bit. Uh, texted with Susie Weldon, and uh, she, we came to the realization that, hey, what say the next time we speak and the times after? It's all about positive stuff about happy stuff so try and take a little bit of a a mild rest this week gonna get to that in just a second didn't exactly work out today <laughs> good lord a lot of things popping off uh, for us to talk about in the indycar world but yeah just been in need of a breath sigh of relief clouds starting to lift and some sunshine coming through and so really hoping that there are no more obituaries that need to be written. Uh, obviously, we know coming up here in Halloween, end of the month, as we always remember, the late, the exceptionally great Greg Moore and some other friends that we've lost. Robin Miller's birthday is coming up here at the end of the month. So it's not as if all the heavy times are going to leave us behind, but I'm just in need of getting out of that because being in a place of semi depression for a couple months uh i've had my fill so with all that said hey you sent in your questions had hoped to record this yesterday uh dealt with some challenges that didn't really allow that so able to do that tonight and since your questions came in oh a lot has happened knew about some of it coming had a feeling on the timing but gotten some of that stuff straightened out so before we get into your q a going to get into some of the news of the day. And if you haven't visited racer.com, oh, there's a lot to read. I'm going to say thank you, as always, to start off Cooper Tires. They're beautiful road tires, off-road tires. And in particular, they're Road to Indy tires, powering the Road to Indy. The Justice Brothers, their automotive chemicals and lubricants that have been a part of my life since I was a brand-new rookie mechanic, something or other, Back in 1986 in open wheel racing. And then finally our pals at torontomotorsports.com and the 
really awesome motorsports memorabilia. They have t-shirts, hats, models, you name it, torontomotorsports.com. So, hey, a lot has happened, and I'm going to run through some of it here. I don't like to do just regular repeating news you might have already read, but I will try and fill in a couple of little insights that might not have made it onto the good old written page. Why don't we start with Andretti Autosport? I know there are some questions about that, and so I'll get into what's left there in your Q&A, but I've been hearing towards the end of last week the team's desired acquisition of a Formula One team, that team being Sauber F1, um, what we know is the Alfa Romeo F1 program. Just been hearing little rumblings that it might have been slowing down a touch the process of trying to acquire a Formula One team. Then heard on Monday and knew, but got real insight that, yeah, actually things have indeed slowed down considerably. So I don't have any deep insights for you in terms of, is there anything wrong? Think so. Just think the pacing, how quickly things might get done which would then lead to a press conference, some news, some big things shared with the world. The desire was for this to come to a positive conclusion, have something big to share at the Circuit of the Americas U.S. Grand Prix this weekend. Learned on Monday, small chance, but boy, probably not what we had hoped was going to happen. And so waited, told, hey, why don't you wait until Tuesday, get a better idea as to whether that is going to be fact. And then today confirmed in a story that, no, there will be no Andretti taking control of a Formula One team news at COTA. Interesting to see the texts come in and who they came in from. That's all between myself and those people that sent them, but some very serious players. Uh, wanting to know more, curious if this meant it's over, it's a done deal. Uh, I'm not aware that it's a done deal in terms of it being over and not happening. What I've heard, which is not on the the printed page because it came in afterwards and and late enough afterwards, don't really warrant going back in, but uh, as I wrote, this is not happening this weekend, but the timeline's being pushed back just a little bit not exactly determined on when exactly uh, that is going to be, uh, have heard that is it possible the Mexican Grand Prix could be a place where we might learn about this, where this information might come forth. That is indeed what I have heard. So, hey, we're into late-ish October, right? The uh, Austin race is this weekend, 22nd through the 24th gotta wait another weekend beyond that and then we get into november uh, so could november 7th ish uh, 5th through 7th at the uh mexican grand prix be where this comes to light publicly don't put money on that but that is indeed what i've heard as where we are are most likely to hear something whatever it is in a formal capacity so we'll certainly have my uh, my ears and my other things wide open. Uh, the other component to this, 
been aware of a desire for quite some time for if all this came together in time for the home Grand Prix in the U.S. to have Colton Herta take part in free practice one. And surprise, surprise, with things not happening this weekend, have heard that there will not be uh, an Andretti presence at Coda. Not a surprise then that the uh, unconfirmed but believed desire to have Colton take part in FP1 with the Alfa Romeo team uh, will not be happening. So, again, would there need to be some form of Andretti control before that were to take place? I'd have to believe so. Let's move on to Cusick, Don Cusick. And this is another thing I've been hearing about for a little while. When I say hearing about, you know, know the, the Wilson family fairly well and the well, I know there is technically a crone family with Anders, but uh, from the, the crazy crone himself, known about Don Cusick's desire to do more than just the Indy 500 with Stefan, a goal to become a IndyCar team owner. So wrote about that and been trying to connect with Don later last week. Entirely my fault that that did not happen, but got that done, got the story written. Written enough of these desired person a wants to become an owner in series b written enough of those over the years where you know ahead of time it's going to take a lot of little miniature miracles for that to happen but maybe that interview maybe that story breathes a little bit more of it into life for the person maybe they're stating it publicly is the thing that will have a driver, an engine manufacturer, a sponsor step forward and say, hey, read the thing, would love to be part of it, and it then happens. This is not one of those stories. This is someone who has the financial ability to make an IndyCar team happen tomorrow, and that's phenomenal. That is also unicorn-esque. Because how many of those folks do we know of in IndyCar today who are there, out of their own pocket, who are wealthy enough to say, hey, I want this, I can make it happen all by myself, and for quite some time. Not, oh, I can maybe scrape it together for a year without depleting my grandkids' trust fund or whatever else. Um, the Cusicks are real, have the desire and ability and have spoken their interest in really and truly doing this, was able to offer a little bit of insight to Anders in a call a week or two ago when they were talking about buying things right now and just mentioned, keep in mind the amount you're going to need to spend uh, in a very short amount of time, 2023, you can buy some existing DW12s. Bear in mind, you're going to be spending a ton more to convert those to this new hybrid powertrain and not so much just the powertrain itself, but all the other things in the car that's going to have to change to accommodate this new engine and hybrid, this new hybrid engine package, the battery, the MGU, the just the standard motor itself, but whether it's from a cooling, from a braking, from a transmissioning to a suspensioning to a there's going to be a lot of changes that come so unless you want to throw a lot of money away now might not be the time to buy and so just sharing those insights is uh, just cool to see that don is undeterred 
still wants to do this, is not averse to having to partner with somebody, realizes that partnering with a team actually be the smartest way to kick this whole thing off. Challenge here is there are a fair amount of teams that are already full up with what they're going to do or have a couple of people inquiring about, hey, could we be an extra car with you? Could we co-enter on something? It's a pretty busy time in that regard. There's not a lot of truly free and available teams to say, yes, we will take your full budget and run a second, third, fourth, fifth, whatever number car with Stefan Wilson as the driver and do this for you for a couple of years and we're just ready to receive, let's get going. One or two that could do this, I would just say those teams might not be the most desirable to do it with. So while there is a little bit of availability that they could tap into here or there, if I were advising, I would say be choosy. And if you have to do something smaller to start, a limited campaign, uh, a, a bigger, better team that can only do some of what you want right now, I'd rather you consider that than doing a full season or two seasons with a team that is going to give you back very little and probably make you lose interest and not want to come back. So that's my outward advice. I do know that there's definitely a lot of talks going on. I intentionally left the teams out. Uh, I'm aware of three teams right now. And so we'll see if and what comes of that in terms of Cusick Motorsports, Stefan Wilson being able to become a full-time IndyCar driver. What made his debut at Baltimore in 2011. Wouldn't that be an amazing story? How long have you been trying to do this? Wilson wouldn't give up. I don't know. Sounds familiar. Sounds like another Wilson that I knew and uh, loved an awful lot. So that I hope again, I hope all that pans out when it does. That's going to be a pretty amazing story of someone who would not give up on their IndyCar dream more than a decade after making their very first start. Uh, after that, hey, testing. That's the real fun thing that's coming up here. Got wind of a bunch of new names we're going to be testing next Monday at Barber Motorsports Park and learned that another journalist had heard about the key name, that being Nico Hulkenberg. So I kind of pressed the throttle on that story. And so guess what? Nico Hulkenberg, this is a question. Not that he's testing, but the official line is that he reached out, asked if he could test, if they would test provide the opportunity, and it was more an evaluation for himself. So that's what I used in the story. This is a desire on his part, no obligation to anything, no strings attached. Here you go. The other thing I've been hearing for a little bit and had some really good sources on this saying, don't be surprised if Nico Hulkenberg is the road and street course driver in a third Aero McLaren SP entry next year. If he only tests and decides not to do it, then I'm sure that's what he'll tell us. If I were to read in the coming weeks, months, however long, 
that Aaron McLaren SP will be fielding a third car, not full-time, not doing the ovals, but road and street courses, and a certain Germanic driver with a lot of promise and potential and a lot of Formula One starts who never quite broke through and, and got to where folks thought he was going to get, could be following a Swiss-born French driver to IndyCar who did road and street courses this most recent season and turned his life and world upside down and is now driving for one of the biggest teams in the series. If we were to read in the coming however long down the road that Nico is wanting to do that same thing and Air McLaren SP is matching that interest with making a third car available for those road and street courses, just saying, uh, not necessarily you heard it here first, but don't be surprised if that is the story you end up reading. Uh, also, some other cool names with that Monday test. A friend of the show, great friend in general, person who does a heck of a lot for the world through his charitable endeavors, that being Ryan Hunter Ray, uh, wrote that he will be testing for Ed Carpenter on Monday. That has a lot of layers to it. I don't believe there's any finality to who will drive Ed Carpenter's number 20 Chevy on road and street courses, but I do believe, as I've written multiple times in a couple of silly season updates so far this year, that Ryan Hunter Ray has certainly been high on the list for ECR if there were to be a change in the number 20. So, Knowing the all-Americanness of that team, and the fact that this gentleman is nicknamed Captain America, knowing that there are questions as to whether Connor Daly will continue in that road and street course role in the number twenty, that there is speculation for sure as to whether the Air Force will be continuing with the number twenty entry there with the team, knowing that if. It were to continue, there's a pretty clear understanding it would need to have an American driver. If a change were to be made, and I don't pretend to understand the contractualness about any of it, if that sponsor staying with the team and that sponsor needs an American driver and the team decided to put a different American driver in it, would Ryan Hunter Ray, who is very close with Ed Carpenter, who tested Ed's car back in 2013 at Sonoma Raceway, happened to be there while the Andretti Auto Sport team that Ryan was driving for with Chevy Powered uh, asked uh, whether, granted, I don't remember whether it was Ed or Chevy or both, asked if they could get Ryan in Ed's car to give it a whirl and give some insights. Keep in mind, Ed, I believe, back then was still doing the full calendar. Uh, so Ryan's feedback, road and street course based, road course in this example would be of value. Um, there's some deep strands, deep ties here. Um, again, not saying there is a change coming in the number 20. Just keep in mind, they certainly would not be testing someone of Ryan Hunter Ray's caliber if there was no reason for it and there was no possibility of the two of them possibly working together in the future. Also aware that and confirm that Kyle Kirkwood and Devlin DeFrancesco will continue to test with Andretti Autosport, so they will be there, part of things. Two other names 
Two other Americans, pretty darn cool, would say, hey, David Malukas, uh, you're going to be doing your first IndyCar test. And he's going to be doing that with Dale Coin Racing. Just referring back to silly season content that's been written, positioned things in the most recent one on Racer from, I don't know, a week or two ago that uh, believe there's going to be a choice on the Dale Coin Racing front as to whether they will be continuing with Vassar Sullivan as a co-entry on the number 18 entry, or if Dale would be partnering with HMD, HMD Motorsports folks, the Henry Malukas Drivers Trucking Company, uh, of which Henry's son David just won a whole heck of a bunch of Indy Lights races and finished a strong second to Kirkwood in the Indy Lights Championship. Uh, or if C, Dale might just choose someone else out of the blue that has a budget to bring and not necessarily do a co-entry, but just work with that person and their sponsor and whatnot. Just saying there's been no announcement from coin, but the fact that David Malukas will be testing for them on Monday would certainly seem to indicate some sort of news might be on the horizon. I know this is super captain obvious stuff, but yeah. Uh, hmm. So take that for what it is. Last one and won't spend too much time on this. I'm going to still write about it first, hopefully, or I don't know. None of this stuff is all that revelatory, but I interviewed our man, Sebastian Bourdais, our French fry today about goals for the future, knowing that the, uh, the Cadillac Cadillac racing announced him, uh, along with a couple other drivers as part of the Cadillac Chip Ganassi racing team, IMSA program, prototype program for next year. Um, I'll come back to that in just a sec because <laughs> there's actually a little bit of funniness there. Uh, so AJ Foyt racing, uh, of whom Sebastian drove for this last season in the number 14 Chevy, they will be testing young Floridian Logan Sargent. He has concentrated the majority of his young career. I think he's still only like 20 years old in Europe. Big dream to get to formula one focus there. European open wheel ladder been in FIA formula three for the last three seasons. I would say where would that fit? If we're trying to compare F three to say the road to Indy, probably Indy pro 2000, maybe a touch faster than Indy pro 2000, but uh, certainly faster than USF 2000. Definitely nothing close to Indy lights at that F three level. Um, Logan's had some success over the last three years. Won three races, I believe is the number. Uh, finished third in the standings in 2020. That fell to seventh last year, seventh in the championship in 2021. So the leap from Formula 3 to IndyCar, it is significant. So I don't know how much in terms of expectations should be placed on him in his IndyCar testing debut on Monday. I know that there are a lot of folks, myself included, who are rooting for him. And do I think he's truly ready, knowing that we're not talking about a couple of years of butt-kicking Formula 3, moving to GP3 or F2 and standing on podiums and then making a transition to IndyCar? knowing that we're still talking about someone kind of middle of the road to indie type preparation 
jumping up to IndyCar, that's serious. So, again, rooting for him, but wonder if a season of Indy Lights under the Foyt banner and then maybe doing pick the number four to six road to road and street races might be uh, an Indy car might be some sort of thing I would more recommend. Nonetheless, happy for him, but it does speak to ongoing question as to who would drive the number 14 Chevy. I'm aware that Logan is among a handful of drivers that the sponsor of the 14 car this past season, Rocket, uh, covets and thinks highly of. And so aware that Logan is doing this as part of the Rocket thing. Where does that leave Seb? So back to the funny part. Uh, Hey, (laughs) not a surprise maybe to you, but believe it or not, I've known about Seb signing for the Ganassi team for a couple months. And again, this is one of those things where uh, uh, not a problem, hold that. But you also start to ask questions of, hey, manufacturer, uh, hey, team. When might you announce this thing that's becoming the worst-kept secret? Uh, I think my pal David Malsher wrote about it for the first time uh, leading into Long Beach uh, or while at Long Beach. So, again, perfectly fine, obviously, with someone else breaking the news. Not a big deal. Um, But still not publicly confirmed by the manufacturer or the team. Woke up this morning to a press release. Actually, I don't think it woke up. It landed while I was awake. But woke up to a press release from the team saying, hey, uh, indeed, Chip Ganassi Racing, Cadillac Chip Ganassi Racing, is going to two cars next year. And here are the extra drivers coming in, one of them being Bourdais. So had written about the going to two cars thing a couple months ago, had written the speculation piece maybe last week about who the drivers were. Again, open secret, but was surprised to see this press release land from not the team, but from the manufacturer. And there were no quotes from Chip, no quotes from Mike Hall or... Steve Erickson or anyone else. Um, It's all kind of driver quotes. And it just stood out as very weird. And so received confirmation about a minute later after that press release landed that indeed no one knew it was coming uh, outside of the manufacturer. And between the team and drivers, they were all caught unaware. Why does that matter? Something when you're hoping to continue with your racing team um you'd rather tell them hey by the way the news that you know about and i've told you is going to happen um it's coming out tomorrow and if there are any additional folks sponsors or whomever who kind of need to be told hey you know it'll be out tomorrow don't don't panic or whatever else everything's good we're still talking about continuing next year yeah it might complicate that a little bit when everyone is surprised by the news uh who didn't want to be surprised by the news so there's some folks who i would say weren't very happy so what does that mean for seb and the aj Foyt team uh again i'm told that there's nothing ended there's nothing bad broken or otherwise the team was aware obviously that that's what he was uh, he had signed to do on the sports car side but there is still the uh, significant goal and desire to continue next year, even if there are a couple of races that Seb might have to miss due to IMSA obligations, but nothing signed, still a desire. Hopefully today's press release thing didn't complicate that relationship. So 
that's a little wind up of what I can tell you and some of the uh, behind the good old scenes type stuff. Uh, what else? Some testing going on at the Speedway today. I was told about this private test. Thinking about 10 days ago, might have been a little bit less than that. And um, yeah, on the sports car side, uh, still trying to get some on the record comments to file a story there. On the Indy Lights driver testing side, was asked to not get into that. Um, and I actually agree for the reason behind it. So uh, I'll leave that right there. And we're going to hit the little music bed to get rolling into your QA. And thank you all for listening. Thank you for sending these in each week. Uh, I try and say this as often as I can because it warrants saying as often as I can. I appreciate you. I appreciate the community that you have helped build, that we uh, we gather around each week, do our uh, week in IndyCar listener Q&A fun. Do enjoy this. Even if I'm recording late on a Tuesday evening, with the NBA season opening and my uh, home area-ish Warriors playing the Lakers, who I hope they crush and make cry. So going to get rocking here with your questions and then hopefully go catch a little bit of NBA action. And that right now, my friends, is the plan. So thanks to our listener, Peter Nutt from Holland. And that's not his real name, but that's okay. Who's helped me to pronounce... The first questionnaire's first name, uh, and hopefully I won't myrtleize this any more than I normally do. It is spelled T-H-I-J-S, and I am told, courtesy of our pal Peter, it is pronounced Tice. And I think I went for Tish or Tease or something, and yeah, that was totally wrong first and second time around, so Tice, I apologize, and yes, uh, thank you for taking pity on me. Tice uh, Berendrecht, you are the first of a couple of folks talking about the Dan Weldon at 10 memorial point that we reached last weekend. Funny. I don't know, funny. I always say things are funny when that's not actually what I mean. But um, that 10-year anniversary, for whatever reason, is something that weighed on my brain as a calendar item for the last couple of years. And I don't know why, probably because it was a really traumatic experience uh, for myself and everyone else who was there or who watched it. So I mean, that's probably the obvious answer. But yeah, for whatever reason, last couple of years, it's just been in my head like, yeah, we're getting close to that 10-year anniversary. Yeah, we're getting closer. And uh, what am I going to do? So uh, thanks for those who read and have sent along a lot of really nice comments uh i'm hoping that i won't forget to mention uh well i'll just mention it now also got a lot of texts from folks who were there folks who were involved folks who will not be named uh some who drove some who were there in more official capacities and a lot of them had one common thing to say and that was calling randy bernard a liar about him being adequately warned directly warned etc. long before anyone ever got to the event. So should maybe just mention that up front because it was significant. The number of people and the strength in their comments uh, of saying, yeah, that part wasn't 
filled with truthiness from Randy. Now, granted, uh, Randy said he was not alerted. There's no one that uh, came to him and said shouldn't run the race, called that BS. Uh, I did make it pretty clear in what I wrote that it is an incontrovertible truth that drivers, at least, made their thoughts and feelings known about this. I heard it from them directly, wrote about it. It was a well-known public comment slash cry for sanity being made in advance of the event well before anyone ever got there. Um, As for whether all those made it to the very top into Randy's office, he's disputing that point, just sharing that uh, after the part ones and part twos came out, uh, there are a number of folks who drew a lot of issues with Randy's response to that, but that's often the case. Uh, with folks reading something and reacting heavily to something they don't agree with. So just want to share that up front because it needed to be said. So uh, Tice, you open things up. You say, sadly, it's 10 years ago that Dan died in that horrible crash. Do you think there will ever be one-and-a-half-mile ovals back on the schedule, apart from Texas? It says, Randy Bernard saw a future of IndyCar with a 50-50 split between ovals and non-ovals on the calendar. Do you ever see that happening again? Um also mentions oval racing looks safer nowadays with the cars, you know, being the way they are, with aero screens and everything else. Uh, he says, or do you see, or do you not see a bright future for ovals on the IndyCar schedule? It'd be great to have tracks like Homestead, Nashville, Super Speedway, New Hampshire, Phoenix, Richmond, all back on the calendar. I really don't, Tice. I really don't. And it's not because I wouldn't love to go back to many of those places you mentioned. Not all of them. I think I've been to all of them. Um, There doesn't seem to be the appetite for trying to promote IndyCar on an oval-heavy schedule right now. There are a lot of things that are working very positively in terms of attendance and, I guess, provenance and history at the road and street courses that we go to realize that not everyone is gangbusters amazing, but we do go to a lot of places that if you look at the ticket sales, I'm again, I'm not talking COVID era so much, but just if you look over the last five years and subtract the, the pandemic part, there aren't many that jump out that were on last year's calendar that you could say, boy, it's a bit of a clunker mentioned ad nauseum my home track of Laguna Seca being one that since IndyCar returned in 2019 took last year off then came back this year. Ticket sales are pretty light, so I don't want to beat that drum again, but that's one that looks iffy if we're talking about surviving purely on crowd size merit and attracting a real audience to care. That one to me is a bit you know on the clock to survive. But for the most part, Tice, I would say that old school era IRL slash cart type era coming together, champ cart era where, hey, uh, we got a lot of dates and there's some dates of yours that we like and let's try and put them together. And would also say there's a little bit of a natural evolution thing going on here of, for the most part, the things that everyone agrees happens to be successful and working crowds good money's good everything's good Uh, i haven't seen many of those events go away 
There are some examples where, again, you could argue that, but for the most part, I think what we see and what has survived and some of the tracks that have come back, right, going back to Iowa next year, um, would say that health is there, uh, would say desire is there. And for the ones that we're no longer going to, Phoenix, for example, so happy to go back, so sad at the crowd size. It was clear right away this was going to be a short-term experiment. Just nobody cared. And so it went away, as it should. Uh, We didn't get a chance to go back to Richmond. Had heard there was pretty good interest. Is that something we could maybe have happen again? I'd love to find out. But again, just I think there's something to the fact that for the ones that have fallen off, uh, maybe that's that's nature telling us there's no real appetite for uh, some of the ovals that we go to or used to go to at least. I would love to see that change, though. Uh, Vincent1701 says, With the 10-year anniversary of Dan Weldon's passing, do you have any stories about him you want to share? says, What have you learned from Dan in life or from his passing? And also is kind enough to say prayers as always to you and your bride and all her caregivers. It's kind of you, Vincent. Um, I don't know if I learned anything from Dan in life or from his passing. That's not meant to be negative or contrarian. Um, I mean, immense sadness, obviously, at, at a dear friend and someone that I loved. But you know, I was, what, 40 when he died? You know, grown man, uh, married for many years, lived an adult life for a long time. Uh, wouldn't say my disposition in life or views on life changed, just sadness and maybe a lack of understanding why some of the truly great ones Great people, not race car drivers, but great people tend to be the ones that we lose. Um, Yeah, so I don't know if there was any big things that came to me from Dan's loss. Um, I think I've shared this on the show before, would have been years ago probably, but had known of Dan a little bit uh, when he came over to the States followed him in what we would call USF 2000 now, and then got to compete against him in the uh, Toyota Atlantic Championship in 2000 when I was race engineer for Hilton Motorsports, uh, working with Kuna Whitmer and also Hoover Orsi. And that was a lot of fun. I didn't end up doing the full season with Hilton, um, but... Hoover was a really good driver, and we had some pretty decent results uh, to open the year. And it was really awesome getting to compete against Dan. And it's not like we knew each other well back then, right? I'm a race engineer for a rival team, and you know he's new to the paddock and such. I'd been around Atlantics for a long time, but regardless, uh, you know, very brief interactions, but a lot of respect for him. Because the same cheeky bastard uh, to the last day of his life, well, he was that cheeky bastard then, and he was going to beat the world. And the kid kind of sort of did. I just remember how much fun it was competing against him because I knew he made it known. And this Vincent is something that is unique to Dan. Uh, he's not the only one to ever be this way, but it was very unique to him back then. 
you knew that everyone that was a quality race car driver that you were competing against in this instance in the Atlantic Championship, that they were serious. They were hardcore. All they wanted to do was destroy you. Not all of them had the personality or character to really make that visible and evident. And Dan did, even when he was still a relative unknown back then. And I loved that about him, right? Precocious, like I said, cheeky, just, hey, I'm going to kick your ass today. And it's like, really? Are you? And I hate to say it, uh, he was usually right. But that kind of fun, right? I love that personality. Obviously, so many folks loved that personality of his, Vincent. It's just not something you get a lot. Like you go, like, how's this? You go and talk to a Pato Award. Hell, you talk to him anytime. We could call him right now, and he would say the same exact kind of things. All I want to do is destroy everybody and just end their dreams and take everything they own. He has that personality, playful kind of fun, similar to Dan. I would say Pato, more than any young driver, reminds me of Dan in that regard, where you've got the stupid level of talent the capability of backing it up on track, pulling off some breathtaking passes, that smile, that big kind of bubbly personality where you know he loves what he's doing, but the fact that he just loves sticking the dagger in and twisting it and is smiling in your eyes while he's doing it, like that kind of thing. That was very Dan, very infectious, and boy, Pato is is all of those things. Um, Colton, as well, wants to just destroy the world, eat you and everybody else in it. And I don't know if he's going to say that out loud so much all the time, but you know that. You get the feeling from him. But this is just that thing, Vincent, that felt so unique about Dan. So I loved seeing it back then. And I miss those simpler times where he was just a kid on the rise. And, but it was clear that he was going someplace very, very serious in the sport. Raymond Wong, I uh, say, Hey Marshall, thank you for the Dan Weldon articles. Most welcome. Of course, Raymond it says, I never watched any clips of the crash until, uh, the Brock beard and NASCAR man history videos on it. Not sure what those are, but fair enough says, I even put my hand up to block the viewing of the crash during those videos. Is there a moment in racing that was tragically horrible that you still have not rewatched to this day? Wow, that's an interesting question, Raymond. I don't know if I remember um, any specific ones. Seen a lot over the years. And that's not some sort of like, boy, I've seen it all. I don't mean that. Just you love the sport. You work in the sport. You follow the sport. You do that long enough. You're, you know, everyone listening is going to be able to say the same thing if if you can't already. Um, I'm not a a crash watching guy. Like it felt it. Well, it was uncomfortable Googling Dan Weldon, Las Vegas crash because it's not something I had seen in 10 years or however long. It's not something I've wanted to see. It's not it's all the obvious things I would imagine. Um, seen a lot of the other fatal crashes, 
some of them happening live. I've never wanted to. Here's one that comes to mind, and I know I mentioned his name earlier, uh, Greg Moore. Um, Happened to see that live. Saw the crash on the whatever camera or whatever monitor and knew instantly that he was dead. Um, just the angle, the, where he hit just obvious from the moment that it happened, that it was fatal. And if it wasn't fatal, I was prepared to be very happily surprised, but there was no question to me as to whether this beautiful soul was no longer with us. Um, I still have that incident as shown as captured by the TV cameras. I could still run that replay in my mind right now. And I only saw it once and then looked away and I've never had a desire to watch. Why would I want to watch it again? I know the outcome. I saw it, saw it happen. Um, so yeah, um, Maybe similar thing with Justin, with Justin Wilson. Um, yeah, so I don't know. Maybe I'm a softy or overly sensitive or whatever it is, but uh, I don't think that there's anything to be taken from these types of crashes that have not led to full investigations and or everything that you're going to learn from them being learned. Me firing up the YouTubes to watch so-and-so die knowing that in some of these cases, you know, they were extremely close friends and others just uh, fond acquaintances. Yeah, that um, that doesn't hold any appeal. So I guess to answer your question specifically, Craig, is what comes to mind. Um, Ed Joris says, I can only imagine how hard the Dan Weldon stories were to write. Great effort. You should write more long form. Kind of you to say, Ed. Um, also should mention, welcome back, Jim Kaiser, putting together our, uh, questions this week. And thanks to Tim Falkowitz for, uh, being our super sub, AKA the Roberto Moreno of, uh, the weekend IndyCar listener Q and a, um, kind of you, Jim, to put this at the bottom of the questions here on this subject. I enjoy the long form stuff, Ed. It takes a lot of mental processing time, mental space. And I ended up not getting part two done until like 4 p.m. on Saturday. And Saturday was the 10-year marker. And uh, just with what's more important at home and in life and all the various appointments that we have and the driving and the looking after the home and my wife, um, I realized that I got started one day too late or had the mental free space and time to kind of go into, you know, I told my wife and a couple others who asked or were curious that like, you know, this isn't something you crack open. Uh, the part one were Townsend Bell, who was amazing in sharing his raw, honest truth about this. Uh, where he said he's able to unpack that. He's gained the skills to unpack, put it back, and leave it in the past. I think I'm pretty good at that, but there's a difference between 
going back and talking about it for somebody with 10 or for 10 or 15 minutes as I have multiple times over the years and I need to go back and live in this place for three, four, five days, however many in a row. So again, none of this is sorrow, oh, woe is me type stuff. It's just, it's heavy. And folks having to write heavy stuff like this, real stuff, um, I envy them because their ability to do that pretty much all day, every day, um, crime reporting or whatever, right, that's, that's real. And so just having to do this for four or five days and kind of be in that headspace, um, you know, my wife was take trying to take good care of me by telling me to take breaks when she saw that I needed to. So it's kind of you to uh, mention this and a couple of others, a couple of other of you mentioned similar things. So I appreciate it. Um, long form, even if it's easy stuff, Ed, that's just where maybe in the coming years when things in the home front become better, easier, and time is uh, readily available. Uh, would love to do more. Always want to do more. Uh, it's just something where farting out a 800-word story about so-and-so doing something is a heck of a lot easier than a four-to-five voice, uh, I don't even know how many thousands of word, uh, multi-part piece that happens to be possible. I'm going to skip over here and break things up for just a second and get to a question that was asked a week or two ago, and I got the answer to it, and I done forgot it. Forgot to include it. So on the good old tweeters, Charlie Mack, Charlie Mack C5, sent in a question and retweeted that question today, and I appreciate that, Charlie Mack C5, because, uh, yeah. So says, I'd like to know about engine oils. So we're going a little bit left field here. We're going to come back to uh, more current stuff in a moment like to know about engine oils, the uh, capacity, the filtering, the frequency of changes, the viscosity, uh, oil pressures in the uh, current engine. Uh, well, so here's what I was able to get. Keep in mind that although such things might not have been crazy top secret so long ago, uh, with only two engine manufacturers in IndyCar right now, two of them locked in a serious competition for manufacturer supremacy. Not a ton of willingness to divulge a lot of things that are specific to their power plants. So this is what I was able to get. Doesn't answer all the questions, but I did want to get this back to you. I won't mention the manufacturers. You might be able to guess which ones helped, but I won't mention them by name. Kidding. Obviously Chevy and Honda, they're the only ones we got. So the capacity side, 14 quarts. Uh, keep in mind that a purebred racing engine like these 2.2-liter twin-turbo V6 Jewels, uh, they're all dry sump. What does that mean for those who don't know sump and whether one would be wet or dry or whatever? Uh, your road car, unless you're driving a Lamborghini Aventador or some sort of supercar, uh, all of our road vehicles are wet sumps. What does that mean? Well, the bottom of the engine, below the crankshaft, the oil pan tends to be a big thing, tends to hang down a bit, have a fairly big dent in it, and that big space is where the oil is carried. 
Obviously, that circulates throughout the engine, keeps things lubricated, keeps everything functioning properly, but that oil pan is the home for the fluid, that oil. That's where it lives and returns to. Well, since getting an engine as low in the car as possible is a huge performance advantage compared to our road vehicles that have the engine sitting up quite a bit and there's clearance needed for that oil pan that hangs below the motor and carries that oil from keeping it from getting hit on speed bumps or whatever else and snapping off and the motor blowing up. Well, to avoid that problem, most purebred racing engines, most racing engines in general, uh, instead of being wet sump like a road car, are dry sump. And so if you look at the bottom of a racing engine like we have an Indy car, instead of there being this dent hanging down below it is completely flat and the oil itself is carried in a remote reservoir and pumped through and obviously cycled through that way that whole thing is done the whole dry sump process again for those who are uh, wanting to know and didn't is all done to be able to run the motor as low as possible in the car so if you look at the bottom of an indy car you'll notice that the engine is sitting there basically dead flush with the bottom of the chassis bottom of the tub and so that's all possible due to the dry sump system Uh, the actual remote tank bolts to the front of the motor there's a indent that is made in the back of the delara chassis and you'll see this in most open wheel cars where when the motor goes in that rectangular oil tank uh, goes right into that little recess and lives right there so 14 quarts in this dry sump system. Uh, as for filtering, uh, most I was could get was it's a custom filter, and uh, there's one filter used uh, per engine, call it life. Uh, as for the frequency of oil changes, that happens at each event. As for the viscosity and oil pressure, those are things that uh, are not ready for divulging. So sorry it took me a couple weeks to get back to that. I appreciate you retweeting your question, so it caught my attention, and that certainly worked. Uh, Let's come back to some various questions. I'm hoping that the insights that I offered up front that might not have been in the latest news might have been of interest. So we're going to get to some random stuff here. Coming back to the writing part, David Cubine says, Hey, Marshall, I've read several IndyCar-related books in the last year, The Beast, The Split, the recent Allen's or Junior Bio you ever thought about writing a book uh you certainly have the writing skills or storytelling skills well that's kind of you um in connections and as recently shown in your in-depth piece and dan weldon uh, if so what are some of the topics you think you'd enjoy getting into on a deep capacity says i'm sure free time at this point is a major factor but i'd buy a book with your name as the author you're the one david i know i got one book sale waiting for me it's a certain desire without a doubt It's the one thing I have yet to do that makes me feel my career is incomplete. Um, So, yes, it is something that I absolutely want to do. I don't know what the subject would be. I have a few things that float around in my head. Some of them are sports car related, uh, talking about some of the vehicles that I love, uh, doing in-depth pieces on some of those vehicles as well that I feel have not been adequately covered in print before. 
Uh, I toy with the idea of an autobiography. There's massive fear on that subject because I never, ever would feel that I am important enough to write an autobiography, and yet I know the life that I have been fortunate to lead the really great, amazing positives and the holy cow, crazy negatives, the wacky stuff that I've been able to do in the sport, my upbringing, my, all these kinds of things. I do think that there's enough there to where it might be vaguely entertaining. Granted, a book about my life compared to 100% of what you would find elsewhere about people in more important and meaningful lives and or or achievement, greater depth and levels of thought and introspection and historical navigation. Like the fact that I use the word like here should tell you I should never write a book. Um, It does interest me, David. I have yet to come across something that just lands with me as, and there it is, go forth and start writing did start writing a book unrelated to motor racing and and whatnot. I don't know if I will ever finish it. I hope so. Um, So that's one thing. Would say that while these are certainly to be found in very many uh, 99-cent discount bookstore bins, I think I have contributed to... I don't know what the number is. How's that? Five, four, five books so far. Uh, a couple of them racing annuals. I think the 2008, 2009 America Le Mans series, call it official season yearbooks, and did a lot of writing there. A um, couple other books that I've helped with, been part of. So I have never written something 100% myself with my name on it, taking whatever position on whatever thing. But yeah, does interest me. Um, still thinking on it, my friend. Thank you for the really kind uh, submission. Uh, John Day. Oh, I love this. Says Marshall, long time listener. First time submission for your IndyCar podcast. Does mention, by the way, he's asked a few in the Weekend Sports Cars show that I do with my pal, Graham Goodwin. Says, with the success of Euro NASCAR, the Euro NASCAR series, it's been around for a while. It's like nearly 10 years. Do you think there could ever be a market for an IndyCar equivalent um, over there? This is wishing all the best for everyone at home. I don't, John. I'd love to say yes, but I don't. Knowing that NASCAR is slash was something unique to export and to kick off in Europe, there's something there. Open wheel racing, there is no shortage of open wheel racing. While IndyCar is certainly very unique and has great history, 100-plus years of its existence, Formula One's been around for a long time. Open-wheel racing at every level has been around for a long time. A lot of the series these days are spec series. So kind of ticking all the boxes that you'd say, well, yeah, those are all kind of what IndyCar happens to do, and I don't know if any of that would stand out as unique. So... I don't think so, my friend. Thanks for sending this in. Keep uh, keep them coming. Uh, Gavin Newton. Not Gavin Newsom. So thankfully the G 
governor of my home state is not riding in. Would hopefully have more important things to do. Uh, Gavin Newton says, hey, Marshall, love the show. Hey, thanks, man. I found myself rewatching the Indy 500 qualifying from last year. was thinking about next year with the already inflated field size, with the workings for next year's drivers. Do you think 2022 will be the biggest year for IndyCar's modern era? I think it could be close, Gavin, for sure. If I recall, and it's a very sad recall, I don't know if I really remember it as much as I should, but I seem to recall 2011, the last year of the old chassis formula being one where there were a heck of a bunch of cars that showed up uh, for the 500. I do think we're going to see that again this year. If we aren't, well, okay. What we should see is 38. There should be about 38 entries. Don't know how that could possibly happen, though, because we have both Chevrolet and Honda that make a limited number of leases available, not only for the full season, but additional ones for the month of May. Engine manufacturers ultimately decide how many entries are in the race. So what have we seen? If I remember the max that we've seen in the last two years or a couple years was 36, I think. I apologize if I'm brain farting. 35, I know for sure. 36, maybe. I don't see how that number could be increased based on what I'm hearing. Knowing that next year is the final year of the current engine formula, going beyond 35, 36 would involve outrageous, outrageous expenditures of money just to get one or two extra cars in the field, 37, 38. I cannot fathom how anyone at Chevy or Honda would get any superior uh, manager or person signing the checks to agree to, hey, we're going to just lose a ton of money on an extra entry or two in the final year when these motors are truly getting pushed into the farthest recess of the storage facility once we get to that final race at Monterey. So that's the part, Gavin, where it should be if motors were just uh, populating themselves like little bunnies and just magically making some more on their own, and it didn't cost either manufacturer any money. If there was tons of motors and all the personnel, extra personnel needed to run those motors, look after those motors, etc., if none of those constraints were in place, I think we'd e- we could easily see 37-38 this year. Count on 35, maybe 36. And then count on this, which was certainly seen this past month of May, year before, uh, month of August. But we've seen this happen a little too much to my liking over the last couple of years, and that is, well, what you got? Right, Not, hey, you're able to fund this and put a extra car or you're a small team trying to make your debut or whatever. You know, you're an indie specialist. Um, if you have the ability to pay for the lease, we'll make it available. It's been a little bit more of a, well, what can you bring? What kind of incentive can you deliver for this relationship? A uh, little bit like being in a seller's market for housing. Okay got a lot of bids um this is our asking price who's willing to go over and by how far 
and I'm not saying our engine suppliers are truly saying, well, what's your best bid and what's your best bid? Just more of a, are there other aspects to providing a lease that could be beneficial for us? Could the driver be a well-liked, well-loved, highly desired person that has big PR uh, possibilities? Well, uh, compared to a team that has a driver that nobody really knows and maybe nobody really cares about, um, who's got a driver who's going to get us the most publicity? We're here to help sell cars. So even if your team might be a little bit better than the other one. The other one's got a driver who can maybe do more for us from a business standpoint. Do you have a sponsor that might provide a service or some a technical component or a, or 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 what are the extra items that might lead us to say yes to your lease request and no to another person's? Realize that's business, right? In a seller's market, uh, there's nothing that is truly just clean and pure. Oh, uh, blind to the requests. However many requests come in, they will all be serviced. This is looking for incentives. How much over what we're asking for can you entice us with? Definitely something to consider here. As we get into this final year of this engine formula, Gavin, and yeah, you're going to hear or read about from my keyboard and maybe some others as we start to get into February, March, you name it, where some of those final decisions start to get made, maybe April, but those who are knocking, saying, hey, we got the money, can we have it? Okay, well, what else do we have to do to maybe get it? And there are going to be some folks that are a little bit bumpy and maybe upset that they didn't get what they thought they deserved. Uh, let's see. Andrew Miller. Uh, we're cracking open the Andretti Colton thing a little bit. Andrew says, are we expecting Alfa Romeo Andretti United F1 Team America with Kerb Agajanian Sauber <laughs> to be announced this week at Coda? We're just going to be hearing more rumor and reports of meetings and such. So covered that off already, but I did love, uh, I did want to skip this because you came up with the best team name. What's the acronym for that? Uh, A-R-A-U-F-1-T-A-C-A-S. I don't know what all that spells itself out to, but it's kind of amazing. So I love that. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah. um, Here's the official quote that I was given earlier today, and maybe it'll answer your question. We have nothing new to say, period. As we have said all along, we remain interested in returning the Andretti name to Formula One, and we are always open to discussing new opportunities in any form of racing. I'm going to move on to the next question. I love that, by the way. It's just, it is what it is. It's the total Juan Montoya quote. Like, look, got nothing new to say. Want to do it? we can we will there you go let's talk um yeah nothing official that's the first official statement from the team that i'm aware of andrew uh in a little while obviously broke the story in whatever that was august about the team looking michael was kind enough to give me some quotes for that um but in terms of a progress report status update may or may not happen what timeline when where and so on 
Uh, other than me mentioning, I've heard it could be pushed now, and maybe we look towards Mexico. This is the only real formal thing that we have. So there you go. Uh, it is what it is. Uh, Cody Oakwood, MP, doesn't Colton have more to lose than IndyCar if he makes a move to F1? If he succeeds, it reflects well in the quality of drivers in IndyCar. If he flops, IndyCar most likely gets their star driver back in a few years. Um, doesn't Colton have more to lose than IndyCar if he makes the move to Formula One? I really did my best, I think, except for one or two people who responded with some things that just pissed me off and I thought were lame. I pretty much didn't respond to anybody's anything to the little open letter to Colton that I wrote, which he knew I was writing. I just try and let folks know, hey, when you read it, just understand it's not coming from a bizarre place. But uh, anyway, so... Didn't really respond to anybody either saying, yeah, you're right, great, perfect, or Pruitt, you total idiot, no way, he should do it, and whatever. Um, I try to look at things like this in a completely realistic mode, Cody. Remove hope, right? So Colton Herta in a Mercedes Formula One car or Red Bull or similar front-running machine would be a race winner this year and next year, and however many years beyond. Is he Formula One world champion caliber? I don't know. I believe I've seen things in him that suggest he has generational-type talent, but since he has not conducted one lap in a official Formula One session, it's a little hard to extrapolate, does he then have the talent to knock off a Lewis Hamilton Max Verstappen, or similar. Uh, Charles Leclerc, blah, blah, blah. I don't know if Colton has America's new Formula One world champion following the great Phil Hill 60-plus years later. I don't know. But I do know he, I have no doubt, the kid can go in races in a competitive car, uh, many races in a highly competitive car. That is not the proposition he would be facing if his IndyCar team owner is able to acquire Alfa Romeo, Andretti United, F1 Team America with Kerr, Baggett, and Sauber. Steinbrenner. We forgot Steinbrenner in there as well. And there's probably another couple co-entrants that we got to throw in too. Uh, Herta, uh, right? Brian Herta Autosport, F1, Alfa Romeo, United, Andretti, Walkinshaw, Team, Zach Brown, Kerr, Sauber, Agajanian, Steinbrenner. Uh, and let's throw in Mike Harding too, just because. Um, that's not the proposition that's happening. And so there's no hope for me in this capacity. The Alfa Romeo, I'll just call it Sauber. That's what the team is. The Sauber team has been one of the worst in Formula One over the last three, four, five years. It's not a meant to be a mean statement against them. Those are the results, <laughs> just like us. We run a full season, they count points, they add them all up for each team, and then each driver. Put them in order, the ones with the most to the least, and you can't argue that the team Michael is hoping to acquire and wanting to acquire is one that has had the least for a good while now. And so, although the Andretti Autosport team is massively talented, has a huge roster of 
engineers and technical directors and all kinds of things across the various series that they are in, I think it would be silly to believe that if here at almost November, if Michael were able to take controlling interest of the team, keep in mind I'm not saying by the team because I don't honestly know if it would be 100%, 80%, whatever percent. Again, just know it's meant to take control of the team. Would any of us have realistic expectations that starting this acquisition process at the end of one year, knowing that their season starts somewhat soon into 2022, there's going to be a massive change in competitive fortunes. Absolutely not. I know that there are new cars coming next year, new cost cap regulations and all kinds of new, new, new. These things have already been put in motion, right? So, you know, we're not too far away from these next generation cars from being tested. That's already baked in. So just saying here, Cody, there's a fresh start for everyone coming next year. Get that. That's awesome. It's a great opportunity for Sauber to move the team further up the grid. But I don't think there's a realistic expectation that on their own or with Andretti's involvement in year one, probably year two, year three, there's going to be a massively different output in terms of performance. And so this is where the... Colton, you're amazing. I love you. I think you have many Formula One wins in your future if you're able to get there. But this is not the team you're going to. And so since we, I at least have to live in reality, I cannot say that you leaving IndyCar behind to go and do this with a team that's near the very bottom is going to do more than give you a lot of results that are near the bottom despite your outrageous talent. You're going to be learning a lot of new tracks for the first time on top of a new car, new tire, new, 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 new. All the things that make drivers new to IndyCar need a couple of years to get up to speed. So this is where we have the situation where I would say, Cody, I would be more sad and sorrowful for IndyCar and Colton uh, if he were to make this move for the two of them. Uh, For us as fans wanting to see what I would think, someone on the cusp of what it feels like greatness starting uh, towards greatness by winning a championship or two or an Indy 500, if not both. It just feels like he's on, as I wrote, on the cusp of something incredible And so to potentially trade that in for welcome to fighting with the Haas cars at the back of the grid, or maybe on a good day, you're 12th or 13th, but you have no chance of winning unless some sort of miracle takes place. Do you trade all of that for a miracle, one millionth percent uh, of, of a possibility? I just, I can't get behind that. And so that's why, as I wrote in my little letter to Colton, stay here, man. You know what you have. You know what your capabilities are. You know how much you could achieve. There's nothing based in reality to suggest that anything like that awaits you in Formula One next year, the year later, the year after. Why not? Which was the heart of the story, uh, the ending-ish of the story, which I know most uh, all the folks who said I was dumb and off base. Seems like they didn't get this part. 
if your IndyCar team owner is really and truly going to be able to take control of a Formula One team, tell me why 2022 or bust is the deal. There's no way he could ever go to Formula One a year, two, or three later while working for Michael Andretti and IndyCar and watching and waiting for Michael and his Andretti team to make improvements to this F1 program so that at the ripe old age of 24 or whatever, 25, Colton, hopefully one or two-time IndyCar champ, can go to a team that is no longer back-of-the-pack-ish, but mid-pack or even higher. I don't understand the, oh my gosh, it has to happen now or else it's all going to go away. Maybe there's something to that I don't get. But if his team owner is able to get a Formula One team, knows that he's not buying Mercedes, he's buying Sauber, United Andretti, F1 Team America, uh, yada, yada, yada. Like, Michael knows what he's buying, knows that it needs to be improved. Why not give him time to improve it and go when it's better? When you could say, yeah, win might still be hard, but not crazy to contemplate. Um, why not 2024, 2025, if Michael's able to pull that off, Cody? So why go there now, if that's an option, if he could even get the super license points needed or the points to receive a super license? That's probably the big thing that still isn't respected enough. He doesn't have the points to do it. Um, if he were able to, if everything aligned, he was able to be in Formula 1 next year, why go now and run at the back and get your butt kicked for reasons that have nothing to do with you? And then come back in a couple years, probably broken in spirit uh, or whatever else. Wait until it's time to go, man. Uh, Ed Joris uh, says, resolve the Indy 500 movie. The uh, 30 for 30 that needs to be made would revolve around Andy Granatelli and the STP cars. Discuss. I think that'd be fascinating. That's a great call. Uh, I'm embarrassed that I didn't think of that when asked about it last week. Keep your thoughts coming in on great IndyCar documentaries. Uh, but that'd be a great one. Uh, it was such a crazy concept of helicopter jet-engined IndyCars whooshing around the Indy 500, nearly winning, uh, but just demonstrated maybe the peak awesomeness of creativity at the 500. Uh, Justin Vroom says, I'm curious about how often cars get, quote, tubbed, where the uh, the driver safety cell, the tub, is totaled compared to having to replace all the peripheral parts, suspension, wings, and your favorite part, the hashtag front nose. Um, what is the cost of the rebuild of each kind of crash? Are there specific examples from this past season? Um, I couldn't tell you what the rebuild costs would be for each kind of crash because every crash is often somewhat unique. Um, as for cars getting tubbed, it's usually enough damage being done to that carbon fiber safety cell to where not just the cost of repair, uh, whether it's done by Aerodyne or who knows, maybe Delara, um, is significant, but also there's questions of where the damage is done. Right? Is it near something truly structural and majorly load bearing? And you know, if you get into something there, and obviously everyone's going to do that's approved to do it, an excellent job repairing the tub. But does the team want to question as to whether yeah that repair is amazing? But 
with too much force put through it is something you're going to crack and twist or behind it or near it or whatever. So uh, I remember back in the day when carbon tubs were newish as being standard, you know, the, I think quarters are about all I can really remember being used, but not like you couldn't use another piece of metal, but a lot of tapping going on. If uh, there was a crash that took place in a, there's Atlantic or lights or whatever, and you're walking by that uh, that team's tent, and you just heard a lot of kind of tapping taking place. That would be uh, the team using uh, a quarter or something metal to tap in the outer areas of where the damage was done to listen for a thud instead of a crisp kind of snap, 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 tapping away. Here's something that was just a little bit soft. And that would tell you that in that area, uh, the honeycomb uh, sandwich, there had been some damage done there, and that's why it was not giving a taut snap. So don't know if there's a lot of, of quarters being busted out these days in terms of tub inspections, Justin. But yeah, uh, tends to be pretty straightforward. Either there's visible damage that makes you go, eh, we need to swap that out, or there's the, do we even want to risk it? Um, granted, Delarty W12 tubs, they're in fairly precious demand, so there's not tons just sitting around doing absolutely nothing, but uh, those tend to be about the two kind of scenarios. Uh, let's see, uh, Cat3Girl2 from Reddit. I think I read that correctly. Uh, do you think 18 cars next season and lights is feasible? Also, I saw that 13 seats are unofficially filled. I have my own thoughts on who is where. I'm just curious to what you think. Hope you're doing well. Well, thank you, Cat3Girl2. And I hope I'm not reading that wrong, but I could. Friend of mine, friend of the show, Jaron Demendal, suggests that, yes, that big crazy 18 number could be a real thing. Uh I've heard my own informal count has 15-ish possible, maybe 16. And I'm not saying that 18 number is not possible, just saying the of the seats that I think are going to be filled and the possibilities that could happen, 15 to 16 seems like something I'm pretty confident on saying is going to happen today. And if some more things happen, I would say that 17, 18 could be possible. Just think about that, right? What did we have this past season? 13-ish regular, 12, 13. Um, being able to bump that up, even just by a couple, that's pretty amazing. And I was looking through, what? I think it was like the year 2000? 2000, 2001 entry list for the Milwaukee Mile cart uh, Indy, Indy Lights race. And I think the entry list was something like 11 deep. And this is with some real names in there. Folks who went on to, you know, successful, long, whatever, IndyCar careers. But yeah, it's funny how for those who just want to find things to criticize Dan Anderson and Anderson promotions about, um, point to, well, boy, we got to single digits there for a while and it really struggled. Yeah, because not enough IndyCar teams gave enough support. Not IndyCar wasn't doing enough. Um, funny how 
we get the number back up to a stronger place, 12, 13 or so on the regular, and now we could be adding two, three, four, five to that possibly, getting back to a place where it's really seriously as healthy as it's been in a super long time. It's back since the Infinity Pro Series days. Um, great influence by Penske, Penske Entertainment, taking control of the series, folks believing in that, and hopefully some more incentives coming. Just say that always going to be defensive for those who just want to poop on Dan Anderson and his daughter Michelle Kish and all they've done. Um, said this recently, I'll just say it again. Imagine if this kind of support was coming down from IndyCar three, four, five years ago. Um, there'd be no need for anyone to take the series back. Uh, it'd be in a great place the way it is. Uh, Nathan, Indy Nathan, whatever happened to the Citroen Buell Autosport effort? Do they still have plans to get into IndyCar either full-time or another Indy 500? Referring to, if I remember correctly, the 2020 Indy 500 effort with Spencer Piggott. Uh, when I asked Robbie Buell about this way earlier in the year, Nathan, same exact question. Hey, you guys still going to keep going? Uh, Robbie wasn't willing to say no. Definitely wasn't willing to say yes said that it seemed like doing the Indy 500, talking about this last May, was a remote possibility, uh, and he did not have high expectations for it, and it did not ultimately happen. When that takes place, you always have to be surprised if it comes back to life. So I would be shocked if we heard about the Citroen Buell Autosport thing again. Hope, obviously, that we will, but rarely does something bubble up, happen, go away the following year, and then magically return. So skeptical for sure, Nathan, but hope for my skepticism to be proven wrong. Um, Let's see, where do we go? Last couple here. Dan Evers. Hey, Marshall. The updated, more powerful engine package for 23 is well documented. My question is, are there plans to reduce downforce for 2023 and beyond? Personally, I'd love to see power and downforce levels return to what we saw in the late 90s, early 2000s in cart. Yeah, the downforce thing I always always am a little bit cautious about here, Dan. Keep in mind that while we are at some we're at and have been at some pretty decent downforce numbers of late, especially during the manufacturer aero kit era, some significant differences here to the cart era where we had outrageous power. We also had outrageously good tires, uh, Firestone specifically. The good years were not great, and then they went away. Um, just speaking the truth. Um, but there were also great Goodyear tires as well when they were you know, fully invested in open wheel before shifting their attention almost solely to NASCAR. But keep in mind the tires back then were things that drivers who continued into the modern-day NTT IndyCar series always spoke longingly of wanting and dreaming of having those tires back. So while we're not talking downforce, we're talking about grip that was very significant. Um, The unique thing that we have going on right now, and I don't know if there's a desire for this to shift, Dan, and that is... Lap times right now are, we're talking road and street courses, pretty much have broken and continue to break 
all the old records where there was more power, more development, more money, more everything. Um, current cars, not necessarily rockets in a straight line, but they absolutely own the corners. Knowing that what's meant to be coming in 23 is meant to own the straights, kind of, sort of, plus also do really impressive things in the corners. I don't know if I want to start messing with downforce levels and taking away downforce because what do you get? You get dragsters. And while that's cool on a super speedway, and again, we hope that the package there is one where we see really impressive uh, average speeds, we're talking about a Long Beach, we're talking about a Mid-Ohio or wherever else. Um, There tend not to be a lot of grandstands in the middle of the straights because there's not a lot going on. And so if that's going to be the most impressive place where the cars perform, and then they get to the corners where they need to brake on entry and whatnot, and they don't have the downforce to do that adequately, you get not a lot of charging into the brake zones. And then if you don't have adequate downforce coming out of the corners to put your foot down without big wheel spin or spins you don't get folks being super authoritative on the throttle. And so I know downforce is often the kind of evil thing that everyone wants to die, die, die. And I get that. We don't want crazy overly downforce cars where it all just seems cartoonish and too easy, but there is really and truly a benefit to having ample downforce so that you can take all that speed you're carrying in a straight line and get to the corners and have folks be able to challenge each other under braking and then also challenge coming off without fear of the thing spinning or, or going straight or whatever being the uh, overlying issue. Uh, where do we go for our last couple things here? We're just about done. Uh, Duncan Idaho 11, you're curious if Connor Daly returns next year. Does he arrive uh, in St. Pete? What does he use to top that mullet? says choices can include hairstyles, clothing, animals, or cybernetic augmentations because it's off-season. We need a bit of silliness. I think he shows up like Dr. Octopus with some sort of metal, mechanical, cyber, whatever things, just ripping cars off the track. Uh, that seems like a very Connor Daly type thing. Um, Jamie Rowe. Hey, Jamie. Say thanks for the uh, 10 year stories on Weldon. What a heartbreaking day and loss that was. Um, said also with you 100% on the open letter to Colton Hurdo. I was wondering if you noticed that IndyCar of all the major sports in America was the one that didn't have a participant miss an event due to COVID through 2020 or 2021. Says, did IndyCar simply have better protocols or did they just get lucky? It's an interesting one. Interesting one there, Jamie. Uh, one that I need to do a little bit more digging on, but. I'm aware of folks having COVID, but not necessarily, as you mentioned, I mean, having COVID, but the timing of that COVID, not necessarily keeping them out of the cockpit uh, due to a race happening once clear tests happened. Don't know about the protocols. I can tell you this. It's not trying to be critical. It's just telling you the truth. So looking at the last three races of this season, having covered all three, having seen that of the three, Long Beach was described as being the most stringent, right, to get in, to gain access, everybody. Um, 
needed to have proof of vaccination or demonstrating, I believe it was, a negative COVID test within whatever period of time coming in, rapid COVID tests in place for those who needed to have them performed before gaining access. In my head, I was expecting, since I didn't experience this at any racetracks, experienced it, a lot of the stuff going into hospitals and all kinds of places over the last couple of years, but at least at the racetrack, Jamie, just familiar process, got a hard card around my neck, and in you go. Um, I was expecting some very serious checkpoint type things. Realize that I'm a member of the paddock, realize I'm a member of the media, have a hard card, um, and all that. But I was very surprised at reading the, whoa, this feels like it's going to take some time. Kind of like going to the airport. Hey, get there extra early. There's going to be some additional steps in place before you can get in. Brother, I didn't, not once did any of that happen to me. I can't speak for others, but uh, they wanted to look through my bags, uh, you know, uh, camera bag and, and rolling laptop bag and whatever else. They wanted to look inside to see if I was bringing in anything that I shouldn't. Other than that, COVID wasn't mentioned once. Proof of anything. I had my little vaccine card in my the, the front pocket of my shirt. Uh, had no reason to bring it. So not just criticizing anything or anyone there, just sharing that even when I thought that there was going to be very strict protocols in place and was told and warned beforehand and read through it to prepare myself for it, I didn't see it. Um quite interesting so i don't know i can't speak to the protocols because the one time i thought it was going to be rough and tough it wasn't uh but i would say that interesting for sure i just don't have any deeper insights as to whether it was protocol or luck uh jim freshy how you doing jim says marshall sending healing thoughts to your family thank you my friend says covid's been devastating to so much of the racing community but i'm not aware of any indycar teams folding because of the disruption, are you aware of any teams that are in deep financial trouble? Uh, some that were. Some that were, but have had to work deals, um, tighten proverbial belts and such. I know Michael Andretti, I know we've spoken about Michael a lot this episode, but you know he was not shy in saying that COVID was a serious hit, mainly because the amount of races that sponsors paid for keep in mind that there's sponsors that pay here's straight up money to be on your car for promotional services there are others that have b2b deals and hey if you're not having as many races well we paid for x amount we're having a couple less we paid for the full thing so we expect a rebate or you're not going to get a check at this interval that you're supposed to because uh, due to the unforeseen thing with COVID, nonetheless, we've, we're not getting what we paid for. Then there's the thing that I would say was a real big hit that was hard to overcome, and that's the B2B side of people saying, hi, we're either spending money with you or delivering X amount of you know significant services in exchange. Um, we, till COVID hit, we're planning to be at every single race in your hospitality suite, talking with the various guests that you bring in from other companies, whether they're on the cars or ones that you're developing or whatever. And this is where we get our value back because we just signed a new distribution deal with whomever. or We sold a million units of our product to so-and-so. 
all from being in this business incubator that you create at the racetrack. Hey, you can't do that incubator thing because hospitality suites aren't allowed and gathering in places aren't allowed and only key personnel are allowed. So some of those things, Jim, that I'm aware of really had a, a pretty significant effect in a negative capacity. But to my knowledge, just about everybody's dug out or weathered this. And so be an interesting question though here as we get into the off season i will try to remember to bring this up with a couple of team owners and see if they have anything to add why don't we ross porter i appreciate your question um not gonna be able to get to it right now there are one or two others uh that did make it above the red line of death that jim uh, has created here but i'm gonna go with our pal shauna oakwood always appreciate it uh when she takes time to write in you're gonna be our final question for this week Ham P uh, helps make it through the off season with the all all the content that's coming out. Kind of you to mention once again. Uh, just spent yesterday watching the SRO sports car event at Indianapolis Motor Speedway with a family, and it got me wondering what benefits does sports car racing provide IndyCar drivers? We've seen some be very successful, like JPM, Elio, your French fry. Some not as successful. Uh, is it really just fun and fast cars, or does it help them in any way? So for the pros, the real hardcore ones, like you mentioned, it doesn't do a thing for them. Uh, Nothing, absolutely nothing coming back to IndyCar. One area where you could say helps in terms of flow is maybe you haven't done a lot of driving of your IndyCar, knowing that IndyCar has very limited testing available to teams uh, during the offseason. It can absolutely help drivers who haven't raced or done anything highly competitive during the off season to go do the 24 hours of Daytona, 12 hours of Sebring. Granted, that's now a clash this year. And after IndyCar starts at season, which is pretty crazy. Um, nonetheless, that could be a help, Shauna. No real direct, and this feeds back to how I drive or perform in my IndyCar, but just a, all right, cool, you kind of warmed your self up a bit, done a little bit of racing. So you're not totally starting from scratch when you get to St. Pete or wherever, uh, the seasons have started in recent years. Then you look at those who haven't raced and you will hear them say, yeah, uh, again, I've tested my car. I've gone quickly in it, but that wheel to wheel thing. Yeah. I haven't done that. You know, it's like boxers. Uh, they tend to fight once, twice, three times a year, maybe your MMA, but you know, if they're going three, four, five, six months between bouts, yeah, there's always that, hey, I need to get in and get punched in the head a couple times to uh, really kind of get myself back in the groove. So that's an area where there's real benefit, written about it, feel like I should mention it again or bring it up in article or something here sometime soon is with our man Patricio O. Ward. That's right. Our little, uh, our little ball of sunshine and attitude and kick-assery from Mexico. Um, he, being a highly talented race car driver, one coming up the road to Indy with immense promise, did have things stall out after Pro Mazda, uh, what we now call today the Indy Pro 2000 category. There was a bit of a hiccup, and there was not... Uh, the money to really continue hardcore as he had hoped right on up 
the uh, the open wheel ladder. So I know that he got a chance to do a couple races. I forget how many, but you know, three or four, something like that. Indy Lights races in 2017 with uh, Team Pelfrey, I think Dale Pelfrey's team. But uh, coming out of Pro Mazda uh, with Team Pelfrey, if I recall, I think he finished second in Pro Mazda then. Just didn't have the budget, didn't have what was necessary to graduate to Indy Lights full-time. And even though he did a couple of races there uh, with his, his Pro Mazda team, he had to go to sports cars. That's where the opportunity was presented. And boy, I'm telling you, Shauna, uh, again, uh, maybe it's still on Racer if you can find it. Talking about his experiences in 2017, where, while it really wasn't, much open wheel it was 95 percent or whatever it was sports cars driving in the uh the pc class the prototype challenge class kind of the second tier prototypes in imsa that kid won everything in the world i think he won seven out of the eight races right driving for uh pal brent o'neill and his performance tech motorsports team what he got was something that made him a raging monster to deal with the following year in Indy Lights. I know that Colton, his teammate, injured his finger, seemingly delayed his progress a little bit while dealing with injury there. Um, without that, would the run for the title been a little bit closer between Pato and Colton? Probably, but I can tell you this. The Pato Award, who won, what, eight, nine races, Indy Lights races in 2018, he would not have been able to have done that if he had come straight out of Pro Mazda in 2016 and gone straight into Lights. Like if you just erase the 20, whole 2017 thing and just say, forget the sports car stuff, forget the prototypes, going straight into Lights, full season with Andretti coming out of uh, Pro Mazda, he would not have delivered as he did. Uh, to then go on and become the champion. And that's not questioning his talent. It is the mileage that he got with that 24-hour race and the 12 hours and the 6 hours here and the 10 hours there, just the crazy amount of seat time that he got that he would have not gotten if he had only done the road to Indy. Um, That is what codified him. That is what sealed him, minted him experientially, that 2017 season with Brent O'Neill in the PC class did things for Colton that we are seeing pay out every day since. And it's because doing a double or triple stint, two hours in the car, three hours in the car, this race, that race, lead driver the whole time, fastest driver in the class, hell, faster seemingly than some of the uh, ones in DPI. The amount of experiences that he had thrown at him at IMSA race after IMSA race, 20, 30, 40, 50 car fields, wherever it might be, whatever race, all the decisions he had to make, how to pass, when to pass, who to trust, who not to trust, saving fuel, maximum attack, pit stops, this, that, like really, truly. He went through about three or four years of on-track experience in one year, if we were thinking about what he would have to do in open wheel to gain that much mileage, learn all those things, make mistakes. Oh man, I thought I could have gone down the inside, but I really shouldn't. I should have waited. Or I should have gone around the outside, whatever, saving tires, saving brakes, just blah, blah, blah. 
would have taken him two, three, four years of additional open wheel to get what he got nonstop racing, crazy amount of track time and education that came from being an IMSA. So that's the thing I would say for sure, Shauna. Um, if a young open wheel driver has the ability to do that in a quick sports car, I'm not saying GT racing is bad, but if you're aiming towards IndyCar, being in a prototype is going to be a closer match. This to me is one where you subtract this from Pato's resume. He is not where he is today as a two-time race winner and title contender finishing, what, third in the standings for Aaron McLaren SP. He would get there. That's not a question. It's just the amount of time it would take to get there. We'd probably need to add another couple years to it. So that's the benefit. And for those that have the ability to send their sons or daughters into LMP2, maybe even LMP3, but preferably LMP2 or DPI or LMDH or whatever the faster prototypes are in IMSA in the future, like that's a master class coming to you in ways through track time that open wheel racing is just not going to get you. All right, Shauna, appreciate you. Appreciate all of you sent in questions. We'll look forward to catching up again early next week. Again, not going to do a, uh, a driver episode this week, but uh, should have one or two more podcasts to put up. Hopefully uh, be vaguely entertaining. One of them that I captured a little bit earlier with my friend, Trevor Green Smith did that. Uh, I think end of last week, something like that towards the end of last week, as he was wrapping up his time at Andretti Autosport, he is moving on to formula one to a team that we're not mentioning on purpose. Uh, but, did a little podcast with him about so you want to work in formula one how do you do that and work through his life story young life story and how he's gone from being a kid uh who didn't know a thing about racing to a kid who is uh heading to his first season working in f1 so got that maybe one or two others to come towards you here alice powell currently leading the w series championship did an interview with her a little while ago so i'll get that up and running for you and other than that I'm Marshall Pruitt. This is your Week in IndyCar Listener Q&A brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com. I'll speak to you next week.